Acts 8, uh, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azastus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. Our sermon text today is Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. As you're finding your way there, I'm wondering if you've ever known someone or talked with someone who communicated that they, want to, they wanted to avoid hell, they in fact, wanted to be forgiven of their sin, but they really weren't interested in a new way of life. They, they didn't want to change. Um, they, they loved their sin, and they wanted to continue in that sin. They, they simply wanted to be forgiven. My, my question for you is, is that person a Christian? The, the Apostle Paul helps us answer that question in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 through chapter 6, verse 4, in a, in a letter that Paul wrote to the Romans that makes the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ known with great clarity. And, and he anticipates some of the questions that we had 
And Paul says this in Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How, how can we, who died to sin, live in it still? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the free, lavish gift of God's salvation leads you to walk in newness of life. You can't be born again by the Spirit and not change. If the Spirit of God has brought you to life in Jesus, you will begin to live a new kind of life. When the branches are attached to the vine, good fruit will grow on those branches. When the Spirit of God dwells within you, you will begin to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God didn't send His Son to the cross to die for your sin so that you can continue to live in your sin. Jesus laid down His life so that you can be, yes, forgiven, but also so that you can begin to live a new life. Salvation is a gift. It's a lavish gift. It's a gift that changes how you live. And this morning as we turn to Isaiah 56, we're going to highlight three ways that your life begins to change, be changed by the gospel. Now, again, remember the context of Isaiah. For the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, we learn about how serious Israel's sin problem really was. They, they refused to repent and, and change. The Lord sent them into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And the old covenant had that stipulation. If you obey, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, there are serious consequences. Then we come to chapters 40 through 48 in Isaiah. And here the Lord makes some very bold promises. He, he promises forgiveness of sin. He promises restoration to Israel, or to, to Jerusalem. More, more than that, he promises restoration to a right relationship with God. But how? Well, in chapters 49 through 55, the Lord tells us how he will do that. It's through the suffering servant, his suffering servant. God would send his perfect servant to suffer in our place to bring us back to God. 
So all of this is a free gift of God's glorious grace. You, you can't buy your salvation. You can't work for your salvation. It's a free gift that you receive by faith. But as we come to this final major section of Isaiah, chapters 56 through 66, the Lord here will reveal to us through Isaiah's vision what this free gift of salvation looks like in real life. Uh, How will you be different when God saves you? Um, This is an important question. And the first thing that we see in verse 1 is this, that the gift of God's salvation produces a new way of life. Verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So don't forget Romans 3.10, which says none is righteous. No, not one. That, that's what's true for all of us in our unregenerate state. But with God's free gift of salvation, an important change takes place in our lives. There, there are three things that we see here in verse 1. First, the Lord says, for soon my salvation will come. And what we know for sure is that this anticipated the coming of Jesus the Christ. The suffering servant was promised, and from the vantage point of this writing, the Lord says, in essence, he, he is coming soon. What, what's less clear is if it was prior to returning to Jerusalem from Babylon um, or after their return from Babylon. But either way... The big event the Lord refers to again and again is the coming of his perfect servant to suffer in our place. And and also, in just a few chapters, Isaiah will also talk about what will happen after the second and at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that we see here in verse 1 is that when God's salvation comes, his righteousness will be revealed. Or when when Jesus comes to bring salvation, the Lord's righteousness will be revealed. The the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So those who live by faith in Jesus are counted righteous by God. Jesus is the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel. It is Jesus' righteousness that is counted as ours when we put our faith in him. It's Jesus' righteousness that that Martin Luther spoke of when he said it's an alien righteousness. It's not ours, it's Christ. But God credits Christ's righteousness to us by faith, not works. Now, back to Isaiah 56.1 for our third observation. It's this, the Lord says, For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Uh, this is the reason... You keep justice and do righteousness. 
Salvation won't come because you keep justice and do righteousness. Instead, you will keep justice and do righteousness because God's salvation has come and has been revealed. In response to God's free gift of salvation, the text says, keep justice and do righteousness. So when, when you are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you, you will and in fact you must begin to keep justice and do righteousness. So what, the question is, what is this justice that we must keep? John Oswald has said this, Justice is the fair, equitable, and blessed governing of a world by its creator according to the purpose for which it was created. Uh, in other words, justice is God ruling in fair and equitable ways. Justice is God governing the world that he created in ways that he considers fair and equitable. Justice is not what sinful man thinks is fair. Justice is what God says is fair. And so if we keep justice, we will live with others in ways that are consistent with God's justice. So justice will not treat people differently based upon the color of their skin, or based upon their ethnicity, or based upon social status, or educational status, or economic status, or based upon their family name. Instead, we will value every human being as a person made in the image and likeness of God. People have value because they are image bearers of God. And so justice will also look out for the interests of others. Uh, not, not just your own interests. We would not be just if we lived this life only thinking about what's best for me. Um, we, we also learn that keeping justice means we, we cannot turn blind eye to things that are unjust when it is in our power to act. We must be people who serve and help those who are treated in unjust ways. Justice will treat with dignity those who are weak and oppressed and poor. But, but when God says, but what God says is just will always be consistent with righteousness. Um, you see that tandem of keeping justice and doing righteousness again and again throughout Scripture. Speaking of God, Psalm 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So if we keep justice and do righteousness, we will do what is right in God's eyes. We, we will treat others in a way that God says is right. We will be a people committed and enabled by the Spirit of God to do what is morally right in God's eyes. Doing righteousness includes conforming our lives to the revealed Word of God. 
The Bible teaches us an ethic that is consistent with the very character and being of God. Again and again throughout Scripture, we see God respond with mercy and compassion to the broken and the contrite. To to those oppressed and afflicted, we see God pouring out mercy. We also see God again and again in Scripture meet out justice against the wicked. God is able to humble the proud. God knows the thoughts and motives of the wicked, and God will not be mocked. Even today, God's wrath is being poured out against those who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. We also know that when Jesus comes again, His judgment will in fact bring full justice. Now, unfortunately, biblical illiteracy is a growing problem in our country. Uh, Some of that is because of ignorance. Some of it is because truth has been rejected. God has been rejected. And Romans 1.18 says that God's wrath is being revealed against those who suppress the truth by their own unrighteousness. I would argue that this is why all of the resources of the federal government right now are being used to fight against the new law passed in Texas to protect unborn babies in their mother's wombs. But it's not just that. There are, in fact, all sorts of ungodliness and wickedness and corruption that exists and will, will be increasingly embraced when the revealed truth of the Bible is rejected. Um, Romans 13 teaches us that God has charged civil authorities with the responsibility, it's very clear, to reward good conduct and to avenge the wrongdoer. And good conduct and wrong conduct are defined by God, not man. But tragically, what is happening is that in the vacuum of biblical truth and as a consequence of rejecting righteousness, governing authorities more often than not lack moral clarity. There is a growing inability to know right from wrong. And our country suffers, the world suffers. And scriptures teach us that civil authorities will give an account to God for how they govern. And this is why God teaches us as the church to pray for all civil authorities. But but also as individuals. We must be individuals who depend upon the Spirit of God to empower us to keep justice and to do righteousness. We must do what is right in God's eyes and reject what is evil. It's not right for us, as an example, it's not right for us to rob a bank because we're poor. It's not right for us to take revenge against the person that has wronged us. It's 
not right for us to bomb an abortion clinic because abortion is wicked. It's not right for us to burn down a city because we have been sinned against. It's not right to be filled with malice and bitterness because of being mistreated. It's right for us as individuals to return good for evil. It's right to leave room for God's wrath. God will avenge, says Romans 12, 17-21. The gift of God's salvation produces in us a, a new way of life. We, we must be individuals who keep justice and do righteousness. And, and within our sphere of influence and within our God-given roles in society, we must influence others to live for justice and do righteousness. That's, that's a new way of life for those who have received the free gift of God's salvation. But, but secondly, the gift of God's salvation also produces a blessed life. Verse 2 says, Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So, the, the man who is blessed by God is really a happy man. <laughs> if God considers you blessed, you have God's stamp of approval upon your life, and that's what makes you happy. You, you have a heart that cares about living your life in a way that brings glory to God. You, you want to live in a way that pleases God. Not, not to gain His favor, because he's already gifted you with his favor in Christ Jesus. The, the man who orders his life in such a way that he keeps justice and does righteousness is considered blessed. And, and this becomes a consistent way of life, enabled by the Spirit. But verse 2 tells us also that the man who is blessed keeps the Sabbath and does not profane the Sabbath. So the significance of the Sabbath has roots in the creation story. We're told in Genesis that on the seventh day of creation, God rested from all of his work. Genesis 2.3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So God made the seventh day of the week holy. Uh, in making it holy, it, w- um, it was set apart for God. Uh, uh, the, the seventh day was really the, the apex of creation. It was a way of saying that all of the work God did in creating, uh, in, in all of creation, it, it was done for Him. It was for His glory. This seventh day then was for the purpose of making God central. What was most important in creation wasn't the stars or the moon or the sun or the animals or not even man and woman created in the image and likeness of God. What was most important for all that was created was the Creator. (laughs) We as created beings are to live our lives for the glory of the Creator. When God rested from His work, we... I mean, we know God wasn't tired. 
Um, we also know that he didn't stop the work of holding all of creation together. But he did complete his work of creation. And when he blessed the Sabbath and made it holy, that's a way of drawing all of creation to center upon God and enjoy God. The, the point of all creation the, and the purpose of all creation was to have joyful worship and adoration of the Creator. That's why you're here. That's why God created you. That's why God redeemed you, to worship and enjoy the Creator. Sabbath-keeping was also an important aspect of keeping the Old Covenant God had established with Israel on Mount Sinai. The Old Covenant was given to show Israel how to live as a people redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And under the Old Covenant, there were, in fact, many stipulations about what you could do and not do on the Sabbath. And all of those stipulations were given to help Israel worship and enjoy God. We know that today, on this side of the cross, the Old Covenant is obsolete. Jesus, it still teaches us, it has an educational benefit, but it's obsolete because Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the Old Covenant and Jesus established the New Covenant with the shedding of His blood. And in this New Covenant, we're told in Hebrews 4 that Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. It's through Jesus that we enjoy God and worship God. Uh, under the Old Covenant, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 tell us that most of Israel perished in the wilderness without entering the promised land because of unbelief. They, they never entered the promised rest. Today, you are exhorted to live by faith in Jesus, who is your Sabbath rest. And by faith, we look forward to our eternal rest with Jesus in glory. So in the New Covenant, we don't keep the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week like they did in the Old Covenant. Instead, we gather for worship as the church on the first day of the week. And we do this because it was on the first day of the week that the Savior was resurrected from the dead. Our, our gathering together on the first day of the week then becomes a vital means of grace for us to keep Jesus central in our hearts, for the desires of our heart to line up with the desires of Jesus. We, we work six days a week, and on Sundays we gather to worship and enjoy our redeeming God. And there we find strength, there we find grace to help us enjoy and worship God every day of the week. This, this is the blessed life. The life that Jesus that has Jesus Christ at the very center. The life that has God's stamp of approval on it. And that's what makes us happy. It's the life that worships and enjoys God through Christ and by His Spirit. The gift of God's salvation produces a new way of life. Keeping justice and doing righteousness, is, and it produces the, the gift of salvation that comes from God through Christ by His Spirit, produces a life that is blessed.
by God. Third, the, the gift of God's salvation produces a new worldwide people. So we learn here that salvation is for all types of people, verses 3 through 6 of Isaiah. If that were not true, there would be no hope for any of us here today. But because of the gift of God's salvation given through the Lord's perfect servant, his suffering servant, we have the great joy of being part of the people of God, a people made up of believers from all around the globe. So th this is big. This is huge news that salvation has come not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Gentiles, too, along with believing Jews, Jews can be part of the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So notice, notice there the, the foreigner and the eunuch. Um, in, in the Old Covenant, uh, in the Old Covenant, the foreigner was prohibited from partaking of the Passover. Uh, we're also learning in the Old Covenant that the eunuch was prohibited from worshiping in the assembly. But now, through the suffering servant, we learn in verse 3 that through Jesus, that is all different. Consider the eunuch, verse 4, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So Laura read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts 8 a little bit earlier. Uh, maybe you're wondering, what does that story have to do with, uh, with Isaiah? And what's fascinating to me is that whole story of the Ethiopian eunuch, how uh, he, he came to Jerusalem to worship. It, it's a picture of this person who, who holds fast to the covenant. He wants to come and worship the God of Israel. But as he was returning home, the Spirit of God moved in Philip's life to come up alongside the chariot that this Ethiopian eunuch was riding in. And he heard this guy reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And this, this guy said, well, how can I unless someone instructs me? And so beginning with that text and all throughout Scripture, the Spirit enabled Philip to tell him about Jesus. And the, Phil, or the Ethiopian eunuch understood immediately this gospel message that came to provide salvation for him. And he understood that baptism, believer's baptism, was a way to demonstrate that he had put his faith in Jesus. He's identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, and he now wants to follow Jesus. And the Ethiopian said, uh, what prevents there's water what prevents me from being baptized it's it's a fascinating story that was in Isaiah 53 in Isaiah 56 the Lord through this vision of Isaiah says that that through the suffering servant the eunuch is going to become part of the people of God and I wonder 
Did the Ethiopian eunuch stop reading in chapter 53, or did he continue to read? If he read chapter 53 of Isaiah, he would have seen Jesus. If he would have continued to read, and my hunch is that he did, as he would have continued to read and he learned about how the suffering servant has come and who, who would be impacted by that, whose lives would be changed by that, he would have seen himself. <laughs> I think it's an awesome story. And Luke there in, in Acts helps us to see that this gospel has come for all kinds of people, even the Ethiopian eunuch. So that, that account in Acts isn't some random story from this guy that happens to be from Ethiopia. It is a story that reveals God promised the suffering servant would come and save a people from all people groups on the face of the earth. And this man is exhibit A of that very thing. Consider the foreigner, uh, verse 6 through 8. It says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane and holds fast my covenant. You see that repeated a couple of times here in this text. Individuals, even then, who were outside uh, ethnic Israel, that God had begun to work in in their lives as a precursor, a, a shadow of something that pointed to a greater reality. Here's this foreigner who keeps and holds fast the covenant. Verse 7 these I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable to my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So this work of including foreigners in the family of God was part of God's plan from eternity past. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read a lengthier text of Scripture. It begins with verse 2, and I want to read this because I want you to marvel at God's plan to save, uh, to make a people to save a people from um, every nation on the face of the earth. Verse 11, therefore remember, Ephesians 2, verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far, away, far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now that's a lengthier passage, but it's an important passage to help us to understand what the Lord said in Isaiah 56 finds fulfillment in the gospel, that Jesus came and saved a people amongst Jews and Gentiles. All those believing Jews and believing Gentiles would become part of one body. There's Instead of two men speaking of Jew and Gentile, there's one new man in Christ. And in chapter 3, we're told that this was a mystery that was hidden from previous generations, but it has now been revealed through the Apostle Paul. And, and then he tells us this was always God's plan. <laughs> so you read through the, the Old Testament and it's all about what God has done to work in Israel, this small ethnic group, but he also tells us again and again that through that small ethnic group, he had a plan that would include all kinds of people on the face of the earth, Jew and Gentile. The fact is... There is now one people of God made up of believing Jew and believing Gentile, uh, or covenant-keeping Jews and covenant-keeping Gentiles. So th this, this is huge. This, this has always been 
part of God's eternal plan. And because of it, we are richly, richly blessed. So this morning, in light of these things, let me just ask a couple of questions in, for application this morning. Um, my, my first question is this, are you born again? H- has the Spirit breathed into your life and brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life? If you are born again, then you have repented and are repenting of your sin and you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You know that the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus in his life, death, burial, and resurrection is your only hope. So are you born again? Are you trusting in Jesus for your salvation? Um, one, of the, one of the manifestations that will be true of your life if in fact you are born again, and if you are trusting in Jesus, is that you will begin to keep justice and do righteousness. This, this is the new way of life that is produced by this free gift of God's salvation. You, you, you want to treat people the way that God treats people. You, you want to live your life in a way that is pleasing to God, in conformity to His revealed will. We all fall far short. That's why we need a Savior. So the question really this morning, are you born again? If you are, are you growing and changing? Are are you living a God-centered life? That's the blessed life where the, the person of God revealed to us through Jesus by His Spirit becomes central in, in our life. He, he's the one that we think about most. He's the one that we want to live for. He's the one that we want to please with every ounce and fiber of our being. As we consider the teaching on the Sabbath, my question for you is, are you making church important? Not, not are, are you just showing up at church and then checking out while some guy stands in front of you and speaks what sounds to be like a lot of nonsense to you. Are are you making church important? Is it a desire of your heart to fellowship and share together the life that God has given to us? Are you worshiping in your heart of hearts? Are you coming, anticipating a time to worship the, the risen Savior? Like the Ethiopian eunuch, are, are you baptized as a believer? Have you identified with Christ by faith in His death, burial, and resurrection? Are you, are you willing to obey the Lord in believer's baptism and let the world know that you want to follow Jesus? Are, are you amazed at the work God has done and is doing to form a people for His name from every nation? You know, we hear a lot about racism and the problem of racism. The solution for racism is to understand the work of Jesus Christ, to understand the gospel and how he has come for all kinds of people and that through repentance and faith, by, by, we, we become members of the, the body of Christ and, and that's where we find unity, where we treat one another with love and dignity. I want you to know that God has created you 
And my prayer is that God has saved you. My prayer is that God's created you and saved you so that the desire of your heart will be to bring glory to Him and to enjoy Him every day. That's, that's the blessed life. That's the good life. That's the life that really brings happiness. It's not lots of other things. It's, it's a life that is where you recognize that you're created, you're saved to bring glory to Him and enjoy Him each and every day. My, my prayer is that that will be true uh, for each one of you here today, young and old alike. Let's pray together. Father, it's amazing to read and to think about the work that you have done to save us through the suffering servant and to change us, to give us a new heart and to give us a desire to live our lives according to your revealed will, to, to keep justice and to do righteousness. I'm amazed at the work of your Spirit to loosen our attachment to all kinds of lesser things and to grab a hold of the person of Jesus and make him central and most important in our life. That's, that's the work of your Spirit. And we're thankful, Father, that we're not at this alone that there are many others that you are also at work in their lives, having saved them, changing them, and together we, we've gathered even today with this desire to worship you, to enjoy you. So this morning, Father, we just say thank you for your Spirit's work in our life. Uh, we together know that the hope that we have for this life and the life to come is only from you. And we praise you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.